In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, just after Jesus rose from the grave and just before he ascended back to his heavenly throne, he commissioned his followers to continue the work of ministry he had begun. That is, to help others to understand and to follow him, to baptize them, and to teach them to live according to his words. Now, last week, we considered the first implication of this great commission. We considered evangelism. Today, we'll consider the second implication of the great commission, baptism. What is baptism? Who is baptism for? When and where should baptism take place? These are all, they're all important questions to ask considering the fact that baptism is part of the Great Commission and it is one of two, only two ordinances that Christ has bestowed to his church, baptism and communion, the Lord's Supper. Now there are a number of biblical passages that document baptism. Of course, John the baptizer might come to mind serving as a sort of forerunner in the transition to the church age. John the baptizer gets his name because, well, he, he was pretty well known for the practice. Christ himself might come to mind. He was baptized by his cousin, John the baptizer. In all four gospel accounts, we read of Christ's baptism. And these passages are extraordinary in that they showcase three things. Number one, Jesus was identifying with sinners in baptism. He himself knew no sin, but was identifying with sinners he'd come to say. He was magnified by the other persons of the Godhead. In the baptism scene, especially Matthew is coming to mind. In Matthew chapter three, Christ is raised out of the water. We hear the booming voice of God the Father, and then the presence of God the Spirit descends upon Christ. But a third showcase it's extraordinary about Christ's baptism is he was being presented as the ultimate sacrifice for sin now follow me on this John the Baptist was a direct descendant of Aaron and the priestly tribe of Levi the tribe who throughout the Old Testament would pre uh, present ultimate the ultimate sacrifice you know for sin or sacrifices to the Lord before John immerses Christ in the water he makes a very priestly declaration here comes behold the Lamb of God who is here to take away the sins of the world John the Baptist was in fact acting priestly in his baptism of Christ so anyway that was, uh, and I'm still in an intro, so it's a long intro this morning. There are a number of passages that document baptism, but today we will consult Acts chapter two, verses 37 through 41. So I would invite you to turn there in your Bibles if you haven't already. And as many of you know, because we spent nearly forever in the book of Acts together, the book of Acts chronicles the beginnings and the practices of the early church. The book of Acts is a descriptive look at the early church, and it is often prescriptive for us today in, in, in today's church, but it isn't always. And here's what I mean by that. 
In Acts chapter one, for instance, after Judas hangs himself for betraying Jesus, we read that a man named Matthias is chosen as an apostle to succeed Judas. This passage is clearly descriptive of the early church, but it isn't so much prescriptive for us today because we no longer have eyewitness apostles. That, and we don't appoint church leaders by the roll of the dice, which is how Matthias was appointed. So, when we study the book of Acts, listen here, we need to do so prudently, so as to discern when and how and if we are to replicate what we read. With that being said, there are several wonderful prescriptive principles for baptism afforded to us in our passage this morning, Acts 2, 37 through 41. Now, note this, right before the passage we're about to read, we're told that the apostle Peter proclaims the gospel to a large crowd of Jews. In other words, he evangelizes them. He tells them who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And now let's read what happens. Starting at verse 37 of chapter two. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Whoa. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you say a word of prayer with me? Father, instruct us concerning baptism and help us to observe it rightly for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. For the remainder of our time, we will make two considerations from this passage. Number one, what baptism is. And number two, where and when baptism is to take place. Those are the two points we will be under for the remainder of our time. Number one, what baptism is. In verses 37 and 38, we see that baptism is a necessary outward demonstration of inward conversion. Before Peter preached the gospel to these 3,000 Jews, they were each, they were all dead men walking with their minds and appetites and aspirations hypnotized by earthly things. But when Peter tells them who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, these 3,000 Jews are cut to the heart. Their eyes are opened. 
their minds are renewed, their hearts are regenerated, and they experience the mystery that Jesus tried to convey to Nicodemus back in John chapter three. These 3,000 Jews are born again by the miraculous working of God. In verse 39, Peter explains to the Jews that this promise of salvation and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Whoa, 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 whoa. Does that mean that we are to go and, you know, baptize all of our kids and everyone else who is far off right now? Uh-uh. That's not Peter's point. Look at how he qualifies the end of verse 39. He's talking about the promise of salvation and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and he says this, it is for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. In other words, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself will end up being miraculously converted and indwelled with the Holy Spirit just like these 3,000 Jews. Theologians who are much smarter than me, they refer to this miraculous working of God as the doctrine of effectual calling. When God calls a person to himself, it is effective. It is effective. Paul explains this in Romans 8.30. Those whom God predestined, he also calls. And those whom he calls, he also justifies. And those whom he justifies, he also glorifies. It's why Paul was so able to confidently write to the Philippians in, in, in Philippians 1 verse 6. We just finished up a series in Philippians and he wrote this. I am sure of this, Philippians, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. He'll do it. Watch. So all of this is above our pay grade to fully understand. It is. To fully comprehend this marvelous truth is above our pay grade. But when God calls a person to himself, his call is effective. And in the case of these Jews, we know it's effective. Just look back down at the text. They are cut to the heart. At the end of verse 37, we see them clamoring with Peter. Oh man, oh man, oh man, oh man. We've tasted and we've seen that the Lord is good. What should we do? What should we do? And P.S., this is a pretty good sign that someone's ready to be baptized. When they're clawing and clamoring for a way to respond to God's miraculous grace, what shall we then do? They ask, the Jews ask Peter, and then he answers in verse 38. First, repent from your sin because you, you, you cannot walk in the direction of Christ and in the direction of the world at the, same, at the same time. You can't do that. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, according to the forgiveness of your sins, you'll receive the promised Holy Spirit. Note here, Peter is obeying the Great Commission from Matthew 28, 19, and 20. He has just made disciples. He's just told all these Jews who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, and now he's instructing them to be baptized, to be immersed 
in and raised out of water, which is the only way we see baptism done in the entire New Testament. Immersed in and raised out of water in an inward demonstration of their inward conversion. Now, let's internalize this for a sec. If you are a follower of Christ, it's because at some point in your life, someone told you who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. How beautiful are the feet of, are, are, are the feet of those who bring good news, who preach good news. If you are a follower of Christ, it's mysterious, it's marvelous, it's beyond our pay grade to understand. It's because the Lord has effectually called you and converted you from death to life. Don't have all the answers there. Don't need to. Can celebrate. Let your mind be blown for a second. And let your mind be blown by the words of God to the Israelites in Isaiah 43, 1, which now echo in song over you. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. If you're a follower of Christ and you've been cut to the heart by his gospel, but you have yet to be baptized, brother or sister, be obedient and be baptized already. It's a command. Does the act of baptism itself save you? No. The thief on the cross who came to repentant faith while he died a slow death next to Jesus didn't have much of an opportunity to be baptized. And yet the Lord said, this day you're gonna join me in paradise. I wholeheartedly believe that that thief on a cross would have been baptized had he received some sort of last minute exoneration. How about this? Do you know a follower of Christ who has been observably cut to the heart by the gospel but has yet to be baptized? Gosh, it's time for them to be baptized. Let's do it already. Fill up the tank. No, actually, I'm going to preach against that in just a second. So I was just joking. Now, where and when should baptism take place? Point number two. Should it take place between two people out in the middle of a desert like we read in Acts chapter eight concerning Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch? Should it take place under the cover of night like we read in Acts 16 concerning the Philippian jailer? No, not if we can help it. And we'll explore that. Because when we study the more normative settings for baptism in the New Testament, we begin to understand that those two instances that I, I just suggested, Acts 8 and 16, these are exceptions. They are descriptive of what happened in the early church, but they are not necessarily prescriptive for us today. And yet, even with these exceptions, there is a common thread that links all New Testament baptisms together and we'll explore this for a moment, and here's that common thread, the local church. Let's consider the eunuch in Acts 8. 
how on earth does the local church play into this? He was journeying home to Ethiopia after visiting Jerusalem to worship God when God sent Philip the evangelist to meet the eunuch in the middle of a desert to tell the eunuch who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. We're told that the eunuch is cut to the heart and then he clamors to be baptized and Philip obliges and then Philip is teleported to a different town. You remember the story? Notice two things about that story really quickly. First, Philip is led to the middle of a desert to lead a total stranger to Christ before being teleported. How on earth are we to replicate that? It's not even safe to replicate that, <laughs> right? This is a prime example of the book of Acts being descriptive, but not necessarily prescriptive. The second thing we need to notice about Acts 8 is that the point in church history when the Ethiopian eunuch is baptized, the church has only just begun in Jerusalem. The gospel hasn't made its way down to Ethiopia yet. And there's no local church in Ethiopia yet. But by God's effectual calling, the Ethiopian eunuch becomes a first convert who would then serve as a forerunner. He would go back to Ethiopia and the gospel would expand and an Ethiopian church would form. The same is true regarding the Philippian jailer and Lydia in Acts 16. They were the first converts in the city of Philippi. There was no local church for them to be baptized in, but upon their conversion and baptism, guess what? A local church was established, and now there's a place to carry out the baptisms of every additional convert in the city of Philippi. Local churches are where baptism should take place. Just look at the Jews, verse 41 of our passage. Those who received Peter's word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added to what? A, 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 a raffle? A family phone plan? No, they didn't have phones back then. What were they added to? They were added to the local Jerusalem church. And we know that that's what's being conveyed here because of verse 42. It's not our passage, but look. They're added to the local congregation who is already together, devoted to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and breaking of bread. There are communion implications there. And prayer. The local church. That's where baptism should take place. Years ago, I don't know if you've heard of Justin Bieber. He's a pop musician. Uh, he's kind of a big deal. Um, Justin Bieber was baptized by his pastor in a bathtub apart from his local congregation. Now, if I ever meet Justin, I already have a lot of questions. Uh, but one would be this. Dude, were you like in Burma 
or North Korea or someplace where they are slaughtering Christians walking like in open profession of, of, of Christ? Were you like in another country apart from your local congregation? I mean, Justin, the Jews, the Christians, the Jewish Christians here in Acts 2, they were signing up for persecution. They're being baptized openly in the name of Christ in the very city that Christ was recently crucified. These Jews aren't making some sort of emotionally spontaneous thing of baptism. They were taking a personal risk being baptized here. Back to my question, Justin. Why didn't you outwardly demonstrate your inward conversion in front of the very congregation you're committed to, man? The very people with whom you sit under the teaching of the word with and break bread with and fellowship with and pray with. Justin, what about being baptized in front of your church family so as to bless them with the opportunity to witness your demonstration of conversion and new life? What about being baptized in front of your church family, declaring to them, I, in Christ, am one with you. And what about giving your church family the opportunity to worshipfully remember their own baptisms while they watched? The local church is where baptism should take place. If you haven't already gathered, I tend to get excited about things that are important and necessary. Baptism is important and necessary. And it is the task of Pastor Ed, and Pastor Seth and myself to instruct and to lead the best we can into biblically informed practices. Now, regarding the spontaneity of baptism, the book of Acts records several, several instances of seemingly spontaneous baptisms. It is prudent for us to remember these instances of spontaneous baptisms were of the very first converts on planet Earth who had witnessed miraculous signs and wonders performed personally by the eyewitness apostles of Christ himself. And again, these instances of spontaneous baptisms were almost always costly and risky to the people being baptized I don't even have this in my manuscript there are churches today there's one in particular coming to mind mega 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 church they on spontaneous baptism Sundays plant people all around the congregation seated in various positions they've already been baptized but in order to stir up a frenzy when the pastor gets rolling and it's time to baptize those people who have already been baptized get up and they run down to the tank and they're dunked again for the sake of stirring up a frenzy within the congregation. What? Pardon me, it's freaking ludicrous, man. No wonder the church barely walks in any power today. We're a, we're a bunch of counterfeiters. What? Not in my uh, manuscript, and I'll probably have to write an email apologizing for that word that I just said a moment ago. Sorry. I just, I'm, I'm pumped. Time to fill up the tank, Seth. Let's do it. No, I'm kidding. I, <laughs> sorry. Gosh, Lord, help me not to make light of these things. Look, within Oaks, baptisms mustn't be painfully delayed. 
but they needn't be spur the moment either. Look, we have the ability to wisely, we have the responsibility to wisely pause for a moment to gauge the integrity of a person's conversion. After all, there is an interconnection, hear this, there is an interconnection between baptism, church membership, and communion. We see evidence of it in many passages, including our own this morning. They were added to the local church after baptism for the breaking of bread. There are implications of communion in there. Now look, we don't, on communion Sunday, we don't keep non-members from participating in communion. However, there is prudence to not be serving it to young kids. There is prudence in waiting to baptize an individual and to wait to serve to them the Lord's Supper until they are under, able to understand and to embrace the role of an, of an accountable church member who is walking in the 59 one another's we see throughout the New Testament. There is wisdom in viewing these things together and just holding our horses. All right? Does that make sense? Secondly, regarding the practice of rebaptism. It seems, I've told, when, when friends ask, where are, you, where are you at these days? I'm in Worcester. And I, I describe it this way. It's like the northern, northern, northernmost part of the Bible Belt. Uh, because there are like 60 churches in this town and everyone has been baptized. Like two or three or four times, <laughs> right? Just to be sure. Just, I got it. You know what I mean? So it's one of the reasons why we don't see lots of baptisms here because it's not our normative practice to rebaptize unless someone is convinced they were not truly converted when they were first baptized or maybe they were baptized in a hot tub by their friend outside of the local church. In those instances, we would be open to re, I would say, baptizing essentially for the first time those who possess a credible profession of repentant faith. Finally, look, I know this is teachy this morning. I'm sorry. Regarding the mode of baptism, this is one of the distinctives in our Oaks Church Confession of Faith, which is in our Constitution. There are copies of it by the offering box in the back. Baptism by immersion. Being fully immersed in and raised out of water is the only mode of baptism we see in Scripture at all, period. Immersion wasn't just the one-time mode for the Ethiopian eunuch in the middle of the desert. Immersion wasn't just the one-time mode of baptism that Christ modeled. A believer's baptism by immersion is the only mode we see in Scripture. Now, will there be a time when an elderly convert here at Oaks cannot be fully immersed and we need to make an exception, maybe so. At that time, you know, maybe we'll pull up a chair uh, right up next to the baptismal, we'll gently tilt their head over and then pour water over their hair or something like this, but our normal go-to mode of baptism will be immersion. Not only because that's all we see, but the gospel, the good news is all over that. Here we go. 
Now I hope to get a little preachy for a moment. And we're almost done. I'm looking at my stopwatch. I have a clock up here, all right? I'm not gonna keep rambling. rambling. Dear follower of Christ, if that's you, I'm talking to you. Think back to when you were baptized by immersion and savor in your heart what it declared. You were once dead in your sins with no hope of being forgiven and reconciled to eternal life with God by your own merit. But because of God's effectual calling of your heart through the gospel message, you are no longer dead in your sin. You are dead to your sin. Big difference, glorious difference. Think back to when you were buried under the water of baptism when you outwardly declared that you have been enjoined with Christ in his atoning death and burial, think back then to when you were raised up out from the water of baptism, when you outwardly declared that you have been enjoined with Christ in his victorious resurrection from the grave, sin and Satan and separation from God have no hold on you any longer and God's song to Israel now refrains and echoes over your life. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Have you sinned since your baptism? Of course you have, so have I. Have you walked as if you have no union with God since your baptism? Of course you have, so have I. Have you somehow managed to lose your salvation? Of course you, not, you, ha you, you haven't. You would have lost your salvation if you could, and so would I. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine as evidenced the outward demonstration of inward conversion, fruit-bearing, life-altering conversion. And I'll say what Paul said to the Philippians in Philippians 1 verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. Signed, sealed, delivered, Breathe in a bit of assurance of where you stand with God. At your baptism was the outward demonstration of inward conversion that has taken place all to the credit and glory and praise and honor of God. Amen and amen. Let's pray together, and then we'll sing. Father, the good news of your Son is written all throughout the ordinances that we have been instructed to practice, baptism, and we will later talk about a couple weeks from now, communion. Not only do these things forge us and make us to be a church by the power of your Holy Spirit, they demonstrate the inward transaction that really has happened in our 
hearts. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But by grace, through faith, you have saved us through the atoning life, death, and resurrection of our Savior. It is a profound thing, baptism. I pray that you would help us to steward it responsibly, that we would embrace best practices as we see throughout the scripture. Father, that you would help our pastors here to lead well in this, that we would honor you in this ordinance that you have given us to honor you by. And that, Lord, we would be strengthened as a church, that we would know who we are standing shoulder to shoulder with in this local assembly, that we would hold one another accountable, that we would spur one another on to good works and to love and to things of the gospel, that our lives, that we would live lives worthy of this gospel, symbolized and shown in baptism. We got a little heady today, a little doctrine uh, heavy today. Lord, please sink it into our hearts and lead our hearts now to doxology, to praise you as we sing a bit about baptism. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray, amen.